All right, if you are here with us, remaining, I invite you to take a Bible out this morning. There's one in front of you, probably in the chair. Uh, it'll be on the screen later on, use your phone, whatever. Uh, but I think it's really good to look at God's Word on your own, so you're not just taking my word for it, but you're looking at His Word uh, with your own eyes. And uh, reminding you that we're in the beginning parts, we're not even in the middle of our series. We're in the beginning parts of a series uh, that we began, I think, three weeks ago, through the book of Genesis. And uh, why Genesis? Uh, well, Genesis is the beginning. It's the first book in the Bible. And, and I'm just convinced that the way that you uh, view God is often constructed out of so many other things that are uh, influencing our thoughts and emotions and experiences. But I wonder, perhaps, maybe we should actually start with the Bible uh, that gets to define who God is and his workings within all creation. And so really how you walk through Genesis and what conclusions you come out of Genesis with regarding God uh, mankind, uh, civilizations, rebellion against God, uh, following God earnestly and honestly, what you come out with, all those things will impact how you view God to be working today within your life and within your context. So this really is an important book. It really is a foundational book. We've looked at the topic so far of just creation, big picture creation. We kind of like at 50,000 feet talking about it uh, for a couple weeks. Last week, we looked specifically at the creation of mankind, the distinct, unique uh, markings that they bear, humanity different than any other created thing, being made in God's image, male and female, made in God's image, and for God's purposes. That, that God wasn't bored, and so he created the earth and the cosmos and humanity. Um, and God didn't need to be loved more and felt like he needed, you know, some love letters written back to him. So he created humans to do that for him. God is fully self-sufficient, but in his nature, he creates and he created good things. And he creates humanity for the sole glorious purpose to bring him glory. That's, that's mankind's sole goal in life, to bring God glory. They're created alone in God's image. They're unique in this role. And, and just talk about, do you live reminding yourself of your uniqueness, your distinctiveness as a human being even? And how uh, I think that even that uniqueness, that image of God marker goes on to all humans, even not those who have committed this life to Christ yet. So that means that every life has value. The unborn child has value. The child born with Down syndrome has, has value. The aging adult who can no longer remember their kid's name has value. And everything in between because they're made in God's image. Today we're going to continue to work out into more of this creation story. Specifically chapter 3 verses 1 to 13. And next week will be chapter 3 verses 14 to the rest. Like I said, when I started the series, we're not every week going verse by verse by verse because we'll be here for a very long time if we did that. So it's time you might just take big chunks. Uh, but today we are going to work through really the first 13 verses of chapter 3. So let me again just kind of set the scene for you here. Adam and Eve have been created. All right, they are living in the Garden of Eden. Where is that garden? Okay, there's two primary thoughts. All right, some think it could have been north, just south of Black Sea by Mount Ararat, something south by the Persian Gulf. Um, we're really not told specifically in the Bible where. We just know that 
Uh, there's different rivers. There's the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates, and those are kind of the markings. So we know where the Tigris and Euphrates are. There's a whole fertile crescent, Mesopotamia, if you ever took history growing up, right? Maybe you heard about that. Um, and so there's just some theories, okay? And, and I think the point actually is that we don't know specific. I think it actually is very intentional. Mankind has a unique way of once we get things we love, we make idols out of them. And I really do think, man, if we thought that's got to be the place, we'd have a shrine, we'd have this big thing, we'd make this thing uh, glamorous and glorious, and, and we would worship it more than we worship the Creator, potentially. And so that's where, it's, where they're set up, though. We know they're living there. We know that within the garden, right, there's seemingly every good food is there to eat, right, out of the tree specifically and vegetation, all the food that was there that was good and healthy and desirable. There were no trans fats, no MSG, I guess, right? Everything was just good that God had created. And Adam and Eve were there, and they had specific jobs, two specific jobs, to be fruitful and multiply, okay, and then to have dominion. That was their job. Make kids and work, all right, and, and populate the earth. That was a job given them to have dominion. Adam was then naming animals, right? Their goal was to, to work, to care for the world that God had created for them. And all of this, all of these things happening, all these things taking place from Adam and Eve's perspective took a certain level of trust, didn't they? I mean, they had to trust that, that God had given them instruction and the instruction that he had given them was good. So when he said to have dominion, to be multiply, but there was a trust there. This good God would only say things that are good and that were trustworthy. And so there was never a moment, I don't think, up to this point where Adam and Eve said, well, I'm not sure about that one. When God said, Adam, you need to name the animals, I don't know if Adam said all of the animals. That sounds exhausting. I think Adam said, okay. Adam was like that child that you wish you knew or had. All right? Hey, you need to clean your room. Okay. I'm sorry, what? That's that sweet relationship, I think, that Adam and Eve lived in. God is a good God, and they only know him as that good God, and there was no doubt, there was no questioning, there was no concern that he would lead them astray. And the work they had to do each day was good. And there was good reason for it. And God was not simply providing them with just busy work, but he had purposes behind all the instruction he was giving them. Again, what Adam and Eve knew of God and who he was, it was primarily based on their experience about him. Adam and Eve had the unique existence to live and have direct interaction with God. And so what they formulated God to be in conclusions that they drove for who God was, was formulated out of their personal experience with him. God had never given them any reason to think anything different than he was a good God. And so even right now, just pause. What about you? What do you think about God? What do I think about God? What have, what have you decided to define God as? What are things about God that you've come to the conclusion that says, God must be this? Well, I, I use this, I definitely use it in student ministry. I work with kids. That I said, look, there are things I'm going to punch you about and things I'm not going to punch you about. All right? And what I mean by that is like there are things I'm going to hold on to tightly with a closed fist. Right? That, that the Bible is God's word. That the Bible is without error. 
that God is a triune God, that he is omniscient, omnipresent. Like, I'm going to go, like, we're going to go at it if you're going to push back against those things. And other things I'm going to be open-handed with. Other theological things that we don't actually get to be told directly what those answers are. But at the end of the day, those things that I'm going to hold on to really close-fisted, what have I used to define what those things are? What have I allowed to speak into those things? There are so many different thoughts about God, right? And how it affects your life. Cleanliness is next to godliness. What book is that in? Like, well, it doesn't matter what book it is, it's in my house, right? It's not in the Bible. But even that phrase feels right, because I mean, God must love clean things. But, it, but if that's what you begin to formulate, well, God must be an only, I guess, a clean God. I'm, I'm sure there are some who think that based on just that saying. Or God helps those who help themselves. W- where's that again? Like, what, where's that phrase come out of? And I can go on. God and suffering cannot both exist in the world. It's not possible. God's a good God. He's a loving God, right? There's no way suffering can exist. So something's awry here. God supports my political party or my candidate alone. I mean, it's nothing new. That's been used. God will solve all of your problems if you just trust him. That's hard, isn't it? Because God didn't tell you to take out $75,000 in student loans. You chose to. And earth has consequences to choices. So no one should ever tell you, just trust Jesus and your debt will go away. Because that's not a, that's not a tra- Jesus is not a transaction that way. But there are some who say this, who teach this. Or God only wants to ruin your fun. Like, man, God is a fun monger who just wants to, to crush it out. And some of you are just shaking your heads like, these are ridiculous. But I promise you, these are things that people have concluded about God. And they they begin to start with phrases that say, well, my God. And so now there's there's an intensely personal thing being said about their personal God. But the problem is their personal God is only being defined by who? Them. And whenever that begins to happen, there's probably caution. That needs to take place. Because many of those thoughts are common within the church culture. And they're common about who they think God is. But many do not have passages to support them at all. So what is it that you think about God? See, though Adam and Eve may have had a moment unlike any other in time. right? Their moment was like any other. In the presence of God. And despite that, they're not that much different than us. Because they too had to form a conclusion and think about who God is and who he was with them, how he acted with them, and why he was doing what he was doing. They had to wonder that. Like The scriptures are not all-encompassing in the sense of we don't get every thought pattern that every individual has. We don't know who Jesus was like as a teenager. We don't know every conversation Ab and Eve had under the stars with a lion cub laying next to them. We don't know if they said, I don't don't know why God put so many stars in the sky, do you? We, We don't know the things that they tried to conclude because those are hard questions. 
who is God? And the reality is, because it's a hard question, you and I don't typically think about it. We have so much on our plates that we're just trying to get through the day. We've got things like alarms, jobs, kids, food, laundry, pets, responsibilities, and on and on and on. And often our default is we settle for conclusion on most things that just feels right. And we say statements like, I'm going to go with my gut on this one. Often that is not the best decision to make. But what if we're, we're not meant to just to float around? But what if you and I are actually meant to think about things, to have conversations, and to wrestle through hard things when it comes to God? When it comes to who He is, when it comes to His nature and His character and how He interacts with us? What if we're supposed to wrestle through these things? And I think we are, but I think the deal is this you're not supposed to do it alone. I think there's danger to just think in a vacuum all the time. But you're meant to do it together. But kind of this whole, that question, who is God? Who have you defined God to be in the backdrop of Adam and Eve? Let's just look at Genesis chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 13 together. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were afraid? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now Genesis chapter 3, I think is arguably one of the most important chapters of all the Bible. You have a scene of tranquility and perfectness before this and now you have a scene in which the fragments of the entire future history of the world are going to be torn apart. We are introduced to this thing called the serpent. There's no known intro. The serpent just appears. So somewhere between it is good, as God declared it, right, in creation, uh, the creation work, and now in chapter 3, a transition had taken place. Evil is now present. Where does this evil come from? Why did God allow this evil to be present? He has his purposes, and we have to stop there. The reality is we're not told. It's a fantastic question to ask. God, if you knew this was going to happen, why even let it get out of the gate? And we just don't know. 
One day perhaps we will, but those are hard questions. But what do we know? Oh, we know the serpent is there. What do you know about the serpent? What do you think? Just tell me. It said it for you. He's crafty. And any other beast says he was crafty. He knew what to say. He knew what to do. There's intent behind what he's about to do. Well, what is this serpent thing? What is a serpent? Right? We don't know about physically, but what is a serpent? Is a serpent this thing that just had a mind of its own and wanted to see what kind of work it could do with Adam and Eve? Or did something take on this serpent? Then I would submit that his identity is Satan. Revelation 12, 9 is helpful in this. And the great dragon was thrown down. This is future comings, right? This is Revelation. The great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were throw down, thrown down with him. So we had that phrase, right? The great dragon was thrown down. The, that ancient serpent. Go to the next slide, please, Mike. Revelation 22. And he sees the dragon. This is again future events of what God will do. He sees a dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And so really, those are kind of some of the foundational passages that we have to, in Revelation, the end of the story. By the way, this is a spoiler alert, how it's going to end. Okay, God wins, right? And then he flashes all the way back here to Genesis. The serpent is not just some crafty, creative thing. But Satan has taken in and taken this form. He's indwelled. The serpent was real. Satan is real. And he's now been taken over. And at this moment, the serpent comes on the scene in Eden and begins a conversation specifically with Eve, though Adam's not far away. And he asks a question. Did you notice the question? It was a fascinating question he asked. The serpent is wise, he's cunning, he's crafty, right? He says this, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? Someone for me, read for me, uh, chapter 2, verse 16. What do you got? In your Bible, on your phone, whatever, just say it nice and loud so we can hear it. Chapter 2, verse 16. So does Satan quote God? No. Satan here intentionally misquotes God. And I think it's fascinating. Because what he says and how he says it in this moment, he begins, you know what he begins to do? It's like the button on the shirt that has that, that little thread sticking out. And any man, anyway, says, I'm going to pull that thread out. I don't know if women do this. I think women just cut the thread because they're smarter than us. He begins to pull that thread out. And that question, Satan begins to try to unravel the work that God has done. So you notice the way the question is being posed by the serpent He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? See, in that moment, the way that he phrases that, Satan is calling to question the goodness of God. He posed that question in a negative aspect. Hey, did God withhold from you? Hey, did God really say, hey, you shall not eat? That's a a negative thing. Don't do this. And in that moment, Satan is seeding in a question about who God is and his very character and his nature. See, God gives the garden to be thoroughly enjoyed for Adam and Eve. 
any tree to be eaten from. He's generous in his provision, and his provision is abundant. So there's not just one tree. It's not like Adam and Eve, like, oh, great, apples again for breakfast. No, it's like, I don't want apples today. I'm going to have an orange. And they had that freedom to do that because God is a good and generous God. And when he made the garden, it was good and he was generous with it. Right? And the serpent now comes in and poses this question negatively. Hey, didn't God say you shall not eat in the garden of that tree? And I believe that intentional word, the spin of his question, is meant to put in a seed of doubt. And in that moment, Eve and, yes, Adam, who's right there, begin, I believe, to question God. See, I think the serpent is choosing his words carefully, and the point here is not to affirm what God has said, but rather to raise questions about the truth of what God has said, the accuracy of what God has said, the validity and the trustworthiness of what God has said. But Eve, right away, seemingly is not wavering, Eve's response in verse 3, it's, it's accurate to what she says of chapter 3, verse 3. She said, well, we may eat of any of the tree in the fruit of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Don't touch it or you will die. And in this moment, the serpent shifts now from misquoting to now calling blatantly the questions of God. And what does he say? You will not surely die. So what Satan began with just doubt now goes to completely speak against the words that God has declared. Church, this is important. Don't miss this. This is still one of the primary tactics that the devil uses in our world today. See, his desire, I think, is often not to just fully come in and blast God and to blast his word, but his desire is often just to cause pause. To cause moments of questioning, which again, questions aren't bad. This, the, the church culture that I grew up in anyway was like, you just, just say yes and you accept it. Asking questions is, is a good thing. Because what answers you get back will do one of two things. It will drive you deeper to your convictions you already have, or it will cause you to rethink your convictions. But Satan wants to cause pause, and the answer he wants to give you is, oh no, I was wrong. God was right. Satan wants to cause pause so that you might then track off in a different direction completely. He still works this way. It's a wrestling match of sorts that's happening right here before us. Is God good in his word or is he not? And you and I are faced with that same question today. Is God good on his word or is he not? What if, what if God's holding back something? <laughs> what if God's keeping something from me? In, in those moments when we just begin to wonder those questions, wondering is fine, but where do you go for, for the answer to those questions matters drastically. See, the reality is that God does never gives, he never gives any indication in his word, in the, in the scriptures, that he has a desire to stifle your life. God never gives any, any indication that he wants your life to be less than. He wants to stop it. He wants to stifle it and let you live under a rock somewhere. Consider these words of Psalm 40, verses 4 through 5. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will, pro- I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So first, the psalmist here says, the one who puts his trust and confidence in God is what? He's blessed. He's blessed. Who puts his confidence and sure trust that God is indeed who he says he is and who he claims to be. Why is he blessed? Blessed? Because that person understands that God's wondrous deeds and his thoughts towards us have been multiplied and they are grand. That God is wondrously gracious and grand towards us. And then fully realize, right? Again, this is fully realized when you just look at the gospel. So perhaps that you just lived your life or are living right now a life that thinks that, that God really just kind of throttles things back from you. That maybe he gives commands on Scripture because he doesn't want you to have fun. He's, he's just throttled all these things back. You made one choice because you thought God said, hey, go left and not right. And, and since then, it just seems like, man, life has kind of been, oh, man, like you're riding a bike uphill. And we begin to think those ways, right? We begin to allow our personal experience and our understanding, which is very limited because it's just in our scope of time, to define an eternal God. And in those moments, church, I would encourage you to step back and remind yourself, return back to the gospel. The gospel that reminds us that God fully displayed his love for you when he poured out his son and the blood of his son for you. See, the gospel is our constant reminder of the grandeur and love of God shown towards us. And so despite what your personal situation might tell you right now, even what your aches and pains of your physical body might think that you want to be right now is just a person who wants to crumble and die, stop thinking that way. Because God has not taken his hand off your life. God is still lovingly caring for you and how can i confidently say that because he gave his son for you and if he's willing to do that for you he wants to walk through this trial with you there's such great risk when we begin to allow our personal circumstance to define god because he's so much bigger than that like how can i possibly say that my day of life yesterday what was that? November 16th in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And whatever conclusion I think that God is, based on my experience of yesterday, directly also applies to the person in the South Sudan today trying to figure out if they're going to live or die. It can't. My experiences can help me affirm things of God. It can give clarity, remind me things of God. But ultimately, my experience is not to be the litmus test that I press who God is through. Because there are plenty of times where I don't know where God is. <laughs> if I depend on my emotion. I can remember just growing up, trying to figure out just, you know, in those point in my life, major decisions. Where to go to school, what to major in. And just feeling like God is, is not interested in giving me an answer, it seems. He's just quiet. And there's risk in those moments when God is quiet to say, God's abandoned me. 
or there is no God to the furthest extent, right? And I'm not sure that's the best situation or conclusion to come to. So the scriptures tell me that, that, that God, he does not abandon his people. He's a faithful God. Sometimes the answer of God is no in certain situations. Sometimes God remains silent so that we would continue to come and ask him. We would continue to be dependent upon him. And in all those moments where I could have said, man, God, you just seem so silent right now. The best thing that I probably could have done if I could tell 19-year-old Nate something was, hey, remember, look at the gospel. In the darkest moment, God did not stay silent. He gave Jesus. So I could be restored in relationship with Christ. My sins are forgiven. That's love being on display for me. See, again, the gospel is not a transaction that we kind of go through and we say, check, next is baptism, check, okay? Maybe church membership, check, and we kind of work through the things. The gospel is meant to be come back to and back to and back to. Look at one individual, George Beverly Shea said. said, there's the wonder of a sunset at evening. The wonder of sunrise I see. But the wonders of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. And I read that and I thought, man, I resonate with that because I know me. <laughs> I can put up a pretty good front for most people. Some of you know me a little bit more. The, the veil's down a little bit more. Oh, man, the wonder of wonders that God loves me. Or G.I. Packer says this, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hand. I am never out of his mind. All of my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. Man, that was really helpful for me. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last sentence. Like at the end of the day, at the end of it all, my life is, is done. What matters is the fact, man, the fact that I know God, but rather the larger fact that underlies the fact that he knows me. Because my emotions, my experiences, my momentary flippant life that I often live wants to abandon God at times. And just what, where are you in this? but yet the fact that he knows us, we are written on his palms, we are never out of his mind. Go back to that truth. Go back to that truth as a reminder. Go back to the gospel again. See, the words of God and his instruction here against Adam and Eve, or towards Adam and Eve, rather, they're the same as they are for us today. So God gave Adam and Eve instruction, right? He, he went to guide them, and his instruction was good. It was meant to be life-giving. He wanted to lead them and give instruction for all of life, not just a moment. And Satan, he doesn't want them to know this reality, and Satan doesn't want us to know this reality too, that, that God's instruction is meant to be good for you. It was given for your good. And Adam and Eve had a moment of testing placed right in front of them. There they stood in front of the tree, their entire existence was being questioned in that moment. And Satan's there, he's asking, does God really love you? 
Does God really want what's best for you? Could he really be generous and yet keep something from you? And in that moment of conflict, God's words were being questioned, and in so doing, the goodness of God was in question. And Satan says, you you surely will not die. But for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Listen, don't forget, Adam and Eve were made in what? God's image. Now, they're not God. They're still distinct, but they're made in his image. So Satan's promise is enticing of them. Look, you're going to be, he's nervous. God's nervous. If you'll eat this thing, you're actually going to be more like him. They already are made in his image. They already are like him in remarkable ways. And so aren't you. And in this moment, in that question, the trust of God's word is eroded. And again, an Adam who's right there next to Eve, Adam who is there, Adam who does not fulfill his role to lead and to be a caretaker, they both take and they eat. And in that moment, they no longer trust the words of God and his goodness towards them. And in an instant, the results are catastrophic. Personally for them, their worlds were undone in an instant. The eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves and loincloths trying to cover themselves. They hide when God comes around. They hear God, then they come back to him. There's fear. Then begins the blame game. Well, she made me do it. And she says, well, the serpent made me do it. And those results have begun to be what infiltrates your life and my life today. What perhaps began through really a strategic question of doubt introduced by the serpent led to a lack of trust that led to the eventual disobedience of Adam and Eve to God and the breaking and fracturing of a relationship that was sacred. And so, we return to our initial question, what have you and I believed about God? What do you believe about God? Do you at times use statements like, God would not want this or God would not do that? But again, what are those things based on? For many of us, they're based on where there are their assumptions, breathed out or, or formulated out of reason that's backed often not by what the Bible says, but by our personal experience. See, often what we don't know about God, which is quite a bit, we begin to make up and we put pieces together. And that's not always bad. Like we have to infer something about God's character and his nature based on what the Bible tells us, what he's showed us in his word. But don't forget, God is God and we are humans. And so even that passage that we read before, right, Revelation 20, the serpent being bound and all, what does that mean? Like, tell me what that means. A thousand years, is that a literal thousand years? Are you going to be there for that? Is there a tribulation period? My point is, <laughs> I'm an Amil, so I'm not sure about that one. Amils right. right. believe things are more uh, just figurative in language, by the way. My point is, even that, right, Rev, Kelly, we can talk later. It's okay. <laughs> It'll be okay. We'll hug it out. It's fine. 
Right? Even my point is, even that, right? To some extent, we're saying, I, I don't know how it's all going to work out. We're not sure how that's going to work out. And that uses plain language. And yet, we're, we are constantly trying to wrestle with, God, where are you working? How are you working? What are you doing? He's given us his word to help us. Psalm 119 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So church, man, first step of this, of knowing who God is, you gotta know the Bible. You gotta know the Bible. Which means you have to read it. Some have said that today there's a larger rise in biblical illiteracy than ever before. And there's probably some truth in that. If I were to kind of give you a quiz sheet and said, hey, just write down the 66 books of the Bible. Are there 66? Are you sure? Maybe there's 67. Now you're like, maybe there are. Oh. Right? So be, some might be hard-pressed to do that. And that's not to make you feel shame right now. But my, if, if, if that's a struggle, though, what else do we not know? Or what are the conclusions that do we come to? We begin to say, I think cleanliness is next to godliness, actually. I think it's in there. I can't tell you where. I mean, it doesn't matter where, right? I mean, that's not a big deal. If it's in there, just trust me. In church, we, we begin to go down that road. It's a slippery slope. Because if we're willing to say that we're, we're trusting in God for life and for life eternal, then we should know who he is. See, the consequences of you saying, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, is that your life actually shows that. There are consequences. Consequences, I know, is often a negative phrase, but there are consequences to you saying, I've trust Christ as my Savior. And one of those things is the Holy Spirit indwells in you, which is an amazing thing, and now your life actually begins to look like the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's trusting in that moment that the life that Christ calls you to is a good life and that God is a good God and his words are good and his desires are good. If you have not yet trusted in Christ, I would put his words to the test. Like put him to the test. God's not so big he can't handle you to test him. Begin to look at the Bible. Begin to read it. Begin to wonder in it. Don't allow deception to creep in, but return to trust the God of the universe who created the cosmos is still the God of today. See, as God's word promises many things. For example, it promises peace. It promises joy. And it promises hope. I'd be really hard-pressed to ask any of you to say, hey, um, which one of those three don't you want? Do you not want peace? Do you not want joy? Do you not want hope? Which one? Good luck trying to figure that one out. Because I'd say I want all three. And God can deliver on that. He gives a piece of, your, of, of you being restored to him. There's hope beyond your circumstance of today. And there's joy in knowing your creator. Only God can deliver on those things. And so I think the example that we get right here in Genesis 3 to start out, even though rebellion is taking place, is simple. Trust in the goodness of God. 
Trust in his words. Trust in his goodness beyond your circumstance, beyond your experience. Trust him. Trust in the goodness of the gospel. And then allow that trust to walk itself out practically. For so many of us, right, our finance is the hardest thing to trust God with. Trust him with it. If he calls you to give, give. Trust he's going to provide. Time, so hard. Kids, so hard. Trust God with those things. He promises to walk through. Satan wants you to doubt. God wants us to trust. And those things don't go together very well. The call is simple. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. God, would you help us in this endeavor? I mean, just trusting you is, it's hard. So many things around us we can see and touch and feel and they're tangible. Um, but God, we, we're trusting you beyond circumstances, beyond understanding, um, beyond what we perceive to be reality even. But God, what we're seeing from the very beginning here in Genesis is that you are trustworthy. And so, Lord, we trust that when the Bible says you're good, that you're good. Hard sometimes to remember that. But God, just because it's hard to remember doesn't mean it's not true. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to read your word, to wrestle with it, and to put it to the test. In your name, amen.